Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Okay, welcome back to another Performance Matters podcast series. Bob Mosier here, and we're honored to have you listening in. And this go around, we're going to do one of our most popular series, which is Experience Matters. And we are honored to have a remarkable learning leader with us today, Jennifer Buchanan, who is the Senior Director of Field Learning and Development at Sam's Club. I am a card-carrying member. It's a remarkable organization. Great service, which is because of your good work. Uh, It's great to have you here, Jennifer. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, friends, so here's what we do, and those who listen are familiar with this. Don't read bios, don't do all the kind of stuff. It helps us just get into, into the dialogue and the story around your good work. Tell us what got you here, Jennifer. What's been your journey in L&D that's kind of gotten to this point? Okay, yeah, sure. So I think, like every L&D person, I'm a lost teacher. <laughs> uh, I went to um, graduate school to do elementary ed. I was interested in how people think and learn. And my husband was flying for the Air Force at the time. And we had an assignment to Germany. And I thought, well, that'll be so awesome because we'll be able to go over to Germany and I'll be able to work and I'll be able to teach at the schools. Yeah. I didn't realize was that is the plan of every Air Force spouse <laughs> when go overseas. So <laughs> I got over to Germany and of course there was no, no jobs at the school. Um, but what happened was, as I started looking at Department of Defense jobs and the experience I had um, in education um, helped me get a role with the Department of Defense as a technical training specialist hmm. for um, the geographically separated units in Air Force Europe. And at the time, there was a program called Customer College, and it was about basically providing great customer service. And I was able to travel across all the geographically separated units in Air Force Europe and um, deliver that training program. And then from there, that evolved into a job as a training curriculum specialist, writing curriculum for Air Force family member programs. And then that evolved into a role at Central Command on Staff, Defense Information Systems Agency. That was sort of more of just like a stopper type role, but taught me how to work really fast. (laughs) My commander at the time knew of my interest in education and special operations command is across the street. And I was able to get on staff at um, Joint Special Operations University when it was moving from Niceville to Tampa, Florida, um, and worked in like the registrar's office and development of the methods of instruction class, kind of going back to that core teacher learning and development type work. And then um, took time off to have a baby and moved up to the New Jersey, New York area. Met a woman when I was on maternity leave with the running stroller. Spent, you know, wow. sort of recounting our, you know, entire lives together. And one day she looked at me and said, you know, I'm the chief of staff at American Express. And we're having a joint consent order and we need someone to rebuild a training program. The next thing I knew, I was up in Manhattan interviewing. I don't remember it because I was so tired. <laughs> so I think I've been there three times. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes when you're tired like that with your nerves, you know, I think you actually do a better job. 
And I built the uh, training program there during the joint consent order. And then one day I got a call from Walmart and we have an FCPA investigation and are looking for someone who has built a training program in an investigative environment. And the next thing I knew, I was at Walmart in, uh, International and built the ethics compliance and global anti-corruption training program there. Wow. And that led to the current role that I had. I wanted to get back into that broader L&D space. Um, I think everyone who is an L&D, you should spend, okay, call it inside, inside the window, outside the window. Of course. And like really in the business training and see both sides of it. Wanted yep. to get to that broader side. And now I am on the Sam's Club side and I lead um, field learning and development. So I have responsibility for our 600 clubs, a supply chain FCDC. So we're a little uh, around 100,000 associates. Wow. That's just a remarkable journey. And thanks for your service, by the way, and your husband as well. That's really remarkable. Yeah, as many, I was an elementary major myself at one time. So it's incredible <laughs> how many of us find our way into this as we get going. So, hey, friends, workflow learning. You wrote a wonderful article for ATD, the Association for Talent Development, called, of course, it perked my ears, Training in the Flow of Work, which is obviously a sweet spot for this podcast and for myself as well. We'd like to go a bit deeper into that during this session, if you don't mind. The article pivots on this program you call Manager in Training, or MIT, as the acronym is in the article. Give us a little bit of the overview of the intent of the program before we go in deeper, and what motivated you to take this more to the flow of work versus, frankly, a more traditional approach that others do in a classic manager training program. Yeah, yeah. So the manager in training program, you know, just on its face, what it is, is it, it's a program that prepares our high potential team leads for a future career in management with the company. And basically what the program does is take them through a journey in the work groups and the club. So fresh, member, specialty, merch, and curbside. And at the end of the program, through the flow of work training, they are able to receive up to a semester's worth of college credit. Hmm our free tuition program at five different universities wow. so at level that's what the program is um what made us decide to do the program so when i first started and we started to have conversations with the different leaders and with associates in the club and conduct focus groups top of the list for everyone was the manager and training program mm -hmm. I heard things about the program but when we really started to kind of dig in there was a couple things that that were really interesting. So we found about five or six different stops and starts of versions of the program. So there was something there that was making it not sustainable, right? Because when you looked at it, maybe the, the content itself, it was fine, but something, it wasn't sticking for some reason. There was also the fact that it was a binder. It was a 300 page binder and it was a 170 page sponsor guide. Wow. So I say that maybe you weren't excited to be in it, but you probably weren't excited to be a sponsor either. <laughs> maybe sponsorship was contemplated, but I'm not sure how well it was executed. And um, we actually had like sitting beside my desk, all of the papers like piled up and I'm five foot two, so I'm not very tall, but it was taller than me. Wow. So, I mean, right there, we knew we had to find a way to deliver it that was going to be more digitally enabled, right? Something that was going to make the content more exciting and that was going to make it stick. But really the kind of turning point on it was it's very focused on tasks. 
when we went through it, right? And it was almost like we weren't giving people credit, right? Like people can think critically and we can open their minds and we could kind of show this in a whole new light. And that's when the transformation of the content started. And then with the digital piece, I mean, that it, it just seems so obvious, right? Sure, right. Oh, wow, we're so innovative. We're like, obviously, we need to integrate this into our existing digital ecosystem. But part of that, I would say that that was really key in that is we wanted associates to have an opportunity to immediately apply what they want. That was really the gap with having that 300 page binder. I mean, those things in every company, everywhere, every role I've ever had. But really, the the kind of the click is how, how do I create it in a way that people can go out and practice it immediately. And then they're able to retain it. Love that. Yep. The stickiness thing and context is a huge pivot. We've talked to so many folks that in this series have talked about that the content was almost never the gripe. It was the application and stickiness. And to your point, I've walked through your stores and the digital footprint there is remarkable. And so, but what would seem intuitive to you Honestly, it's, it's interesting how we still haven't made that jump in other areas. So you go into four guiding principles in the article mm-hmm. that kind of took you into this. Would you take us a bit deeper into those? Because with your pull to workflow, I get why you went here. Again, it's such a transformational change for me as I read that. And we've talked through it for an L&D team or an L&D department because they really aren't the ones you'd find typically top of mind when you take people through programs. So take a bit and give us the background. Yeah, so with the um, behavioral-based learning framework and kind of our view on learning, actually, it's kind of funny you say this because we we call it the exploding brain slide, where we put (laughs) together on this kind of behavioral framework for learning was basically like, we want it to be personalized, we want it to be a journey, we want it to be customized, and we want to bring the associates closer to work. When you put it down on paper, it's so obvious, like, yes, of course course we should be doing this but I think as learning and development folks like sometimes it tends to be this hey we would like training okay please fill out my needs assessment form right and then we go off and make training right and six months later the business has flown by us and we turn around and we deliver our training and people say what was that and we really wanted to like re-engineer a new way to think about it Hmm. and we knew if we started with the behaviors that we wanted to change then we could drive from there And when you frame it up that way, it makes a lot more sense to the business, but also to the team. I said to the team, like, we want to be a subset of enablers of the business, right? We don't want to be just order takers, right? If we really want to drive change, we ultimately need to drive the behavior. And we need to have deep conversations with the business about what behavior are we trying to change? And then let's drive from that behavior. And then we can create the training or the experience. And hey, you know what? Sometimes when you have that conversation, you realize what you actually don't need is training, right? You realize it might actually be a different issue. Um, I can create the best training program in the world. I have no doubt in my mind, but if it's a performance or a talent issue, my training is not going to solve that issue. So it's really getting down to the core of what it is. But yeah, that is basically how we, we started to kind of think about that. And it also is just like, why wouldn't we do that for our own L&D team if that's what we're doing for our associates as well? Like we're trying to open their mind and encourage curiosity and critical thinking. As an L&D team, we need to evolve our way of thinking as well. Brilliant. From behavior back, we talk about pivoting and apply here all the time. And it's amazing how for years in L&D, we've kind of flipped it into knowledge first and then kind mm-hmm. of hope those binders and those amazing yeah. times in the classroom somehow transcend 
to the workflow. So brilliant work. So this behavioral based learning framework, how does this work for you guys? And if you can kind of take it through an experience of sort of like a day in the life or on the shop, if I will, about what this is like for the learner. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a couple of things, it was like, first of all, we wanted to go from like technical to more conceptual when we think about how we frame up the learning with this framework. And the second is, is we wanted to define the behavior we wanted to change first and then create a common language around that behavior. So there was like sort of a lot of change management things on the back end before we ever got to creating any type of content. Our conversations with the business were more like, okay, put yourself in the future and nothing stands in your way. What is the world going to look like differently after when they get this training or they get this experience? And then that's what enabled us to create the journey. But when you think about the journey of itself on the floor, you know, an associate will have in their handheld or their iPad, basically a landing page that they come to that recognizes them as an MIT associate, right? And it's going to frame up their learning. It's going to track where they are in the program. It's going to show um, what type of activity do they have? Do they have an immersion? Do they have an activity with their handheld? Do they have a debrief? Do they have a reflection, right? And they're basically going through these different areas. A actual concrete example would be we have a digital voice response assistant that's called Ask Sam. So to kind of put in the context of the club, the learning, it might be like, use Ask Sam to get a spec sheet on a product. They would then have to pull up that spec sheet. They would have to evaluate it for accuracy. Perhaps they would have to show another associate how to do that, right? And then with a debrief and a reflection on the end. So they're basically mirroring in the context of the club what their work would look like day to day. Another example would be at the jewelry counter. So mm. trying to do things to make it more interactive and fun, right? So if you work at the jewelry counter, you need to know the gemstones, right? So instead of just having like five paragraphs about the different gemstones, how about we have a gemstone matching game? That's a lot more fun. And that's something that they can do right there in the flow of work to learn the information. So that's really how we brought it to life. I think the other piece that I would say on this, and people can slap my L&D hand, is community over content. If you're able to create the community, the SMEs come along, the content will flow in, and you create that current community of learners. That's what creates the buzz around the training. Um, and you really have to be able to do that to drive the behavior change. Yeah. You know, relevance and application. You know, it's funny, again, I mean, my professional career, since you made this shift, you used to have to beg SMEs for time to help us do our job and get our training built. Whereas when you make this shift, there's buy-in. They get about the relevance. It's their, it's, it's what they do every day and helping others do what they do, including themselves. And so their desire to want to help and be a part of this is just a dramatically different thing. So getting people up to speed, you know, is one thing. So up on the gems and up on the jewels and the other things and, and so on. Remaining competent in the world we live in today is crazy. The rate of change, and I'm sure in retail and with supply chain, my gosh, all the things you're faced with today, to come in to work every day at the shop floor and to do apply is what we call apply, solve and change, mm -hmm. right? Versus to come up on new and more, hardest and the most difficult place it's been in my mm -hmm. recollection. How does this flow into that part of the world and part of their work as well? Yeah, so I think, you know, first of all, it's all integrated into the flow of work and into the digital ecosystem, right? So it's not like training as a separate siloed area that you're going to get, right? It's part of the experience. 
also, you know, our framework is very similar to yours. Maybe, um, maybe our words are a little bit different, but we like to say activate, apply, demonstrate, and integrate, right? Awesome. And about that throughout the journey and throughout the behavioral learning framework. But the way that that is organized on the back end is very mm-hmm. And that's where that contextualization and curation of all the content comes into play, right? Because that's how you keep that content organized and relevant, that you don't have just this ecosystem of content that you can't keep track of. And we try to think of that within the context of the club, within all of the work groups of the club, and that's all of the connectivity on the pieces that allow us to keep it up to date. And I'd also say just walking the floor with your sneeze having them have the same experience. I, we always had a joke in compliance training, like we should make every SME take their training, <laughs> all the compliance training. So, but really putting themselves in the shoes of the associate, right? Because that's how you're really going to see the impact of what you create. Yeah. So let's go a bit deeper. You use a great word, two great words, curation and maintenance. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to traditional instruction, you know, we've got almost a waterfall design, right? We have iterations of our content, version mm-hmm. one, two, or three, alpha, beta. I've heard all kinds of things. Alphabetical, yeah. <laughs> 100, 200, 300, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's definitely a, almost an academic model, frankly, right? So, but we're mm-hmm. talking about a whole different world here. We're talking about things at the moment of need, mm-hmm. the immediacy of the day, how did you help your L&D department and those you engaged in this journey in keeping that current in your organization? It's a very different way of thinking. And it blindsides most L&D folks when they cross into workflow because of the immediacy with which a lot of this content needs to be kept. And, and it almost swamps their ship in maintenance alone. How, how did you do this differently? Yeah, so you can't own everything. <laughs> own what the actual, like what's in the actual content, right? What you own is how do you kind of evolve that into a training and make that a great experience on the floor for the associate in partnership with the SME? I think it's definitely not, I, I think of that game like telephone where you know one person says something and then it goes down and when the last person says it, it's not the same thing anymore. That's what happens when you don't have a partnership, right? And then the impact is to the associate in the floor. I think also with the SME part of it, it's back to that piece around within the context of the club. All of that training needs to fit within those work groups of the club. Mm. And that enables the associate to cross train into those other areas of the club. When we have all that connectivity between the content and we can see where all of the pieces fit together. Now, the one thing that I will say that I, you said blindsided, and I think it, it, it's interesting too, because I think what we are seeing in L&D right now is that what's happening in the outside world, we are having to immediately pivot and create content for correct in L&D. And I didn't have a crystal ball, so I didn't know about COVID. But what was interesting was that changed the way that members wanted to shop, right? And then they didn't want to come in the club. So then curbside pickup is created. And then curbside pickup, right? We need training around how to pick. We need to integrate that into our digital tools. So that's where I think no matter how quick you are, your content development models, you still really have to pay attention to what's happening outside in the environment around you to pick up on the signals and have the strategic foresight for to plan. You may not know exactly what you're going to create, but you need to know that you're going to need that bandwidth in the future. Well, you know, Jennifer, there's so many things you did right here that set you up for success. The other leaders we've talked to during this series since COVID, the ones that have done really well were doing workflow stuff before this came. Right. And so the shift from that model to the immediacy and the way you're so in tune with the flow of the business and what's happening in it, your ability to adapt and go with it in a more agile, if I may use that word way, Mm -hmm. I think put you way ahead of the game. So my friend, here's the thing. 
you've outlined a remarkable journey professionally. You know, a lot of people that join us are not where you are at all. There are so many are still dipping their toe in this mental and design shift to workflow. Looking back on your journey, what advice would you give yourself to those who are back, right? Who are, who are considering this for the organization? And it feels like a mountain to climb to get to where, you know, you have arrived in your organization. What would your vision and advice be to yourself? Okay, so it's probably not what you think it's going to be. When I was a kid, my parents were always watching the comedian George Carlin. And so there is one thing that he would say, he would say, think off center. Mm -hmm. I think that that is the advice that I would give myself, especially with, you know, you're talking about the traditional schooling, right? Like the military is like, that's where the Addy model was. Exactly. Right. Right. Traditional hardcore L&D. You definitely have to respect it. But what he was trying to get across in that quote was like, if you think like everybody else, your success will only be average. But the minute you start to think outside the box, that's when things start to change. And I think that the earlier you can start to do that in your L&D career, the faster you'll start to drive that chain. Um, and I think, you know, I think executives are really looking for that creativity from their L&D team. They're not looking for you to do that one shiny thing that's a one and done. They're looking for you to really transform the organization. And there's so much that can be done, but you really have to push yourself to think outside the box. And once you can get comfortable in that area, then you'll see that evolution. Well, my friend, if there's ever been a time in our history where leadership like yours and that thinking is needed, it's today, right? I mean, right. there's a there are wonderful learning leaders, and then there are those that I call courageous learning leaders. And you, my friend, fall well into <laughs> that category for what you have done. We so appreciate your time today. Uh, obviously, people can reach out and contact you via LinkedIn and other ways to follow up after. But we can't thank you enough for your time, for your vision, for your courage to take your organization where you have, and for your graciousness and sharing your story today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be part of this. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and we'll subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.